0: Today's guest is Gad Sad. Many of you know Gad from his video blog, The Sad Truth. That's S A A D. And if you know Gad, you know that he's been fighting some of the same battles online against the regressive left. Gad is uh, a professor of marketing at Concordia University in Montreal. He's also taught at Cornell and Dartmouth, and UC Irvine. And he's he's pioneered the use of evolutionary psychology in marketing and consumer behavior. And his books include The Consuming Instinct, uh, The Evolutionary Bases of Consumption, and Evolutionary Psychology in the Business Sciences. He's published many scientific papers, and again, he regularly podcasts at the Sad Truth, S-A-A-D, on YouTube. As you'll hear, Gad and I get into some controversial areas, and we spend a fair amount of time talking about the attendant risks of doing so. Apologies for my voice throughout. I've just been recovering from a cold, but hopefully I still made some sense. And now I give you Gad Sad. Well, I'm here with Gad Sad. Gad, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: So great to be with you, Sam.
0: Obviously, we have many fans in common and and many people listening will know who you are, but for those who don't just tell us something about your background, and how do you describe what you do at this point?
1: So, I'm a professor. Uh, professor of marketing is my official title, and I also hold uh, the Concordia University Research Chair in Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences and Darwinian Consumption. It's a, I know it's a mouthful. Uh, which, what basically that means is I try to marry evolutionary theory in the context of consumer behavior so in in generally in the behavioral sciences but in particular since i'm housed in a business school and i'm in a marketing department i try to look at what are some of the biological and evolutionary underpinnings that make us who we are as consumers
0: so now how did you come to focus on consumer behavior
1: so consumer behavior so i had done an mba uh and where you know My curiosity with this field had been titillated, Uh, although I had a background, a very technical background in mathematics and computer science and some operations research, but I had always been interested in behavioral sciences. And so it seemed like consumer behavior would be the nice place for me to marry my technical background, because I was originally thinking of being a mathematical modeler of consumer choice. Uh, And then when I went to pursue my PhD at Cornell, uh, the gentleman who became my eventual doctoral supervisor suggested that I take some uh, psych courses. And in one of those courses, uh, advanced social psychology, halfway through the semester, the professor assigned a book called Homicide, which was written by two Canadian evolutionary psychologists where they explain criminality from a biological and evolutionary perspective. And so that was the genesis of my interest in evolutionary psychology. And since I wanted to study consumer behavior, that's where I had the idea, okay, well, since no one has looked at the biological roots of consumer behavior, that's what I will focus on.
0: For those who don't know, and they can discover your podcast on on YouTube, on The Sad Truth, you are a very committed enemy of political correctness and moral relativism, postmodernism and identity politics and all of these other intellectual and ethical trends that seem to be going in the wrong direction. But yet you are a professor at a university. Do you ever regret getting into this swamp and and dealing with these issues?
1: (laughs) You know, it's it's funny because you probably heard the term, of course, having skin in the game, right? Uh, It's difficult to have more skin in the game than somebody who is sort of in the cesspool of all of these ideas that you mentioned a few minutes ago and yet try to, uh, you know, critique them from within. Uh, Look, the reality is I think that my unique personhood is such that I sort of couldn't live with myself if I don't tackle wherever I see some enemies of truth or reason uh, manifesting themselves. And so in a sense, I can't be anything than what I am. Uh, So I regret in the sense that if I were a bit more of a careerist, if I were a bit more strategic in my thinking, uh, then I might have taken a slightly different road. But I simply can't do it. I mean, I always try to be polite. I always try to be uh, as kind as I can be. Uh, always have decorum. But I can't sit idly while you know the humanities and some of the social sciences are being infected with movements that are genuinely grotesque to human reason. They're an affront to human decency, if I dare say. Mm. And so I speak out against it. And so, uh, and and that, if you like shapes a lot of what I do. I mean, of course, when you when you are an academic, when you're a scientist, you're trying to pursue some area of truth or try to get closer to understanding some phenomenon. Uh, but I think that more academics need to be using their training to weigh in on topics outside of their very limited scope of sort of official training and expertise. I, I'm quite... Uh, astonished that there aren't more people who lend their voices. I mean, I realize that it takes a particular type of personality to put your ideas out there in front of, you know, a large audience. And most people probably feel more comfortable being in their lab, speaking only to their colleagues in the ivory tower. But it's a shame because these are all important issues that you mentioned. And there has to be many people who are combating them.
0: Which of these issues or which among the many things on the menu that people are inclined not to talk about, Which do you think is the most radioactive? Do you have a a sense of what gets you into the most trouble at this point?
1: So it depends if you mean in the general campus or in science. So let's let's do both. So if we're talking about science, there was a paper that was published, I think, in 2005, either in Nature or in Science, and I think the title was Forbidden Knowledge. Mm. What are some research questions or research topics that you should stay away from? And probably the top two ones that are to use your term the most radioactive would be racial differences any research on racial differences uh, and then probably second would be uh, difference uh, sex differences mm. so if, and of course that's that's definitely where i come in because a lot of the research that i do uh, from an evolutionary perspective recognizes that we that human beings are sexually dimorphic by definition i mean that's how we define the species and so to have a debate as to whether You know there are sex differences that are innate. It's preposterous to most people who are biologically inclined, but yet much of the social sciences have, you know, built edifices of you know theories and empirical edifices completely rejecting this possibility. And so, from a scientific perspective, I would say probably sex and uh, racial differences. But in the general campus, uh, anybody who attacks uh, not so much postmodernism but political correctness. So anybody who ruffles the feathers of the thought police uh, is in trouble. So it could be if you attack affirmative action, if you're against it, well, that's wrong think, and therefore you'll be into trouble. So I think there are two distinct things. There's the general discourse on campus, and then there is the specific scientific fields that are radioactive.
0: Are there any topics that you have just decided you won't touch? Obviously, there are topics that don't interest you, or you think to touch them would just be—you would just have no motive to touch them, or 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 they would, you know, you'd have to have some negative motive in in order to want to go there. But is there any topic that you think that is valid and should be productive to talk about, but it's just too damn hard to do it, so you just avoid it?
1: Uh, so I've never consciously thought of an interesting problem to pursue, and then using the calculus that you just mentioned, decided against it. If I've not tackled a problem. Typically, the criterion that I've used is that I'm, I don't find that problem sufficiently interesting for me to spend some time on it. And so really, that's that's the key driving metric. There's, there's a great paper that I think all doctoral students should read in their doctoral training. It is a paper from the early 70s titled, That's Interesting, with an exclamation point. It was written by a sociologist whereby he was offering a framework for trying to understand how do we determine whether a research question is worthy of pursuit. Uh, and oftentimes, one of the things that we forget is whether at the end of the journey, of your research journey, whether people would scream out in excitement. That's interesting, right? And so really what drives me to a fault, I think, and, I, and I'll explain in a second why I say to a fault, is what I call cer- cerebral hedonism. I just like to pursue intellectual landscapes for no other reason than because they're interesting. So if uh, Sam Harris comes to me today and says, hey, there's this really interesting FMRI FMRI study that I'm thinking of working on, and I think your expertise would be great. And if you convince me that it's an interesting problem, I'm on board. Now, the reason why I think that that's a bit of a fault is because as as you may know, and I say this with regret, in academia, uh, what's more promoted is for you to be very, very narrow and to go very deep. So if you study emotions, then spend the next 40 years Studying emotions and fill in the blank, right? But don't foray into different lands. And I find that life is too short. I truly am somebody who's interdisciplinary. And so I just go wherever the spirit moves me, so to speak.
0: Yeah. Well, also, reality is interdisciplinary. <laughs> right. You know, we don't find actual boundaries on our intellectual landscape apart from those we erect based on just methodological concerns and bureaucratic concerns and how. You know, the fact that you have to physically go to one building to learn about medicine and another building to learn about biology on a university campus. But obviously the boundary between medicine and biology is non-existent once you look closely at it. Obviously I'm very sympathetic with this appetite to go wherever your interest takes you. I guess I'm I'm also sympathetic, and this is where these taboos, I think, creep in for even well-intentioned, and and not especially thin-skinned people, I'm sympathetic with the feeling that there are certain questions upon which any kind of significant interest suggests that there's something wrong with you, you know? So, you know, one, not, I'm not speaking about you personally, Ged. Right. So, you know, I, I see these people who seem extremely interested in, say, Racial differences in intelligence. They want to study this. They're outraged that it's you know it's a no go area for science. It's a completely legitimate question to pose biologically, but one wonders what is the purpose of seeking that information and what would you do with it if you had it.
1: I can propose a possible uh, uh, criterion of relevance for the exact issue that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. If you were, if you're an evolutionist, you you study what are the selection pressures that would have resulted in the evolution of a wide range of traits, right? I mean, why is it that some people are darker skinned than than others? Uh, and so, from a strictly theoretical perspective, one, and I'm glad you said that it's a it's a certainly a, a valid question to to study. One could argue: Are there uh, selection pressures? Uh, that have faced groups of individuals in our evolutionary history that would have resulted in the evolution of, uh, you know, various, if you like, intelligence abilities at the group level. Now, the reason why that's, of course, very, very toxic is because it's one thing to argue, you know, for the evolution of a morphological feature like your melanin level. It's another thing to say group A at the group level is somehow less creative or has lower IQ than group B. But from a strictly conceptual theoretical reason, it's perfectly reasonable to ask that question. And incidentally, that's exactly what Philip Rushton, who's probably the most known, he recently passed away a few years ago. So he's a guy who spent his career studying racial differences. And his argument was, was roughly what I just said, which is, look, it's an interesting question to study for reasons A, B, and C. I don't have a racist bone in my body, but I follow wherever the data takes me. And then, of course, people argued, no, there is no way that you could study this question if you didn't have ulterior motives. And so then they would concoct these associations. You know, he's got, he has got money from the Heritage Foundation Institute, mm-hmm. and they're a nefarious group, so he must be a neo-Nazi. And I don't know the answer. I don't truly know whether he was a racist or not. But at the conceptual level, there's no reason why that should be a taboo topic. I mean, do you agree?
0: But it, you just see that of all the topics in the universe to spend weeks and months and years fixated on, it's easy to see how people who would fixate for the wrong reasons would be interested there. And you, you can see them seize upon the data such as they are with glee. But the irony, of course, is that both sides of this issue are taboo. So for instance, if you wanted to talk about a given community and why they may not be thriving to the degree that some other is, and you're going to ask the question: Is there a genetic reason for this? Well, that's obviously taboo. Right. But w- what's left for you to consider at that point is a cultural reason for this. But to say that there's something wrong with a given culture is also taboo. So right. you have just taken off the table the only two facets of reality that science can deal with. And so you 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 can basically say nothing scientifically about differential degrees of thriving in various communities and you know that's obviously not a uh, a great situation to maintain for centuries in science it's interesting that this taboo really only works in one direction because if you're looking for good things about a culture if you're saying that Asians are showing some aptitude academically or you know let's say quantitatively or you know Ashkenazi Jews have shown a history of real literacy and, and a contribution to intellectual life disproportionate to their numbers, as is undeniable. To look into the biological or cultural basis of that, it may be taboo in some quarters, but it's certainly less taboo.
1: Well, what's interesting about, I mean, you're, you're talking about nature, nurture, and genes and environment. I think, on average, people would construe the genetic explanation as more taboo than the cultural one, if only because it is perceived at times wrongly so, that it is more immutable, right? Uh, There's nothing supposedly that I can change about my genes, but culture, we can Mm -hmm. change it. And I think that, and the reason why I say that that's incorrect incidentally, is because much of who we are, as you know, is really an interaction between our genes and our environment. And so... Uh, so you know so, to sort of separate them as though genes can't be. Changed. I mean, genes are turned on or off as a function of environmental inputs, right? So people have a wrong idea of what's immutable or not. Hmm. Uh, but I think that point is really at the root of I think a, a, our common friend Stephen Pinker. I mean, when he took on the blank slate, and I've taken it on uh, uh, on my own from in my own research. I mean, the blank split slate is is really appreciated within the social sciences precisely for the reason that we're mentioning right now, which is, uh, you know, it's nice to believe, it's a very hopeful message, it's nice to believe that no one starts off in life with anything other than, you know, equal potentiality, right? And that it's only you know, the nefarious forces of our environment and socialization and so on that take us down the life trajectories that we go down. That's a nice message. So anybody can be Lionel Messi. Anybody can be Einstein. Anybody could be Michael Jordan. So I think a lot of the the nonsense that's been spewed in the social sciences over the past hundred years is not because, you know, most social scientists are, you know, walking degenerates who don't understand uh, anything about life. It's I think it comes from a good place, right? So, for example... The cultural relativists, you mentioned earlier, cultural and moral relativism. So that started with Franz Boas, the cultural anthropologist, mm. who sort of was aware that having a biological explanation for things could, could have a downstream effect that's, that's bad, right? And we, could, we know all the different reasons for that, right? And therefore, let's create a worldview that, while completely incorrect, is at least more hopeful. And, and, and that, to me, is a, an affront to the truth, and therefore, I will attack it.
0: Again, I, I'm a little torn on some of these issues because I do see some of them as just not being a direction worth going. I mean, actually, it's interesting because this is really not my bent at all intellectually. I, I just tend to go where the facts lead. But I'm sympathetic with the idea that certain types of research, certain facts, which can be as factual as any other, can be so reliably misunderstood or misappropriated, that it's on some level knowledge not worth having. There's nothing to do about it necessarily, or if there is, that's not obvious, and the result could be reasonably expected to be bad or, or unproductive for society. And so I still think that this, the search for racial difference in specific areas like intelligence or, let's say, aggression, There's no doubt they exist. I mean, it would be a miracle if populations that show significant phenotypic differences by dint of their distinct evolutionary paths showed exactly the same level of traits for every trait we value. I mean, there's just no way that's true, right? So if we could really get down in a fine-grained way to the details here and Scale all these different populations on intelligence and empathy and aggression and everything else that is psychologically interesting to us. What then, right? And it, this does come back to what you said about a misunderstanding of just what it means for something to be genetically determined or to have its basis in biology. Because obviously, as you said, ideas modify the regulation of our genes, experience does. The brain is not a closed system. The brain is in dialogue with the world. So the boundary between nature and nurture is not hard and fast. And if you look closely enough, it really doesn't exist. So when you're talking about the ways that are left open to you to use this knowledge, you're not talking about changing the genomes of people to improve them. At least you're not talking about that yet. And also there's a misunderstanding that creeps in that, that the variance is likely to be significant enough that it would be rational to judge someone based on the population they come from. Let's say it's, it's just a fact that Koreans are, on average, better at math than white Americans. You know, I'm just making this up, but let's say something like that's true. Sure. And you you introduce me to a random Korean and a, a random Caucasian. It would not be rational for me to think I knew anything about their mathematical ability based on their racial characteristics. But no one's going to, to follow that, really. And people are just going to make these blanket judgments about populations based on the facts we find.
1: Right. And incidentally, by the way, what you just mentioned, I mean, yes, you took the most toxic of the topics, racial differences, but almost verbatim, what you just said has been used to, to uh, cast a negative light on anybody who does sex differences research, right? Right. Uh, and people say well you know why can't you study something that unites us something i, I remember I, I received once a a review you know reviewers comments uh, I, I submitted a paper to a top journal so you know why are you so focused on sex differences what's the point of that why not study something that unites us well the reality was i was studying sex differences in information search prior to choosing or rejecting a mate right how much information Do men need to acquire, or women, before they decide that they've seen enough information to either reject a, a prospective suitor or to choose a suitor? So this was really at the intersection of information search and mate choice. And by definition, the nature of that research question was about a sex difference, right? I was using principles from biology to argue why I would expect a sex difference. Well, this particular reviewer, I mean, in line with some of the language that you use, said, well, what's the point of that? Why not study something uh, that transcends our sex, that unites us? And that is a bit of a arbitrary point to take. And I mean, if I could just draw another example. I mean, uh, uh, Fermat, right, the the French mathematician, Hmm. developed theories or proposed or proved theorems You know, several hundred years ago, that collected dust for several hundred years. And then today, many of these principles are used in cryptography. Well, had he used the benchmark then of, I better do applied research that has clear, immediate application value, he would have never done this. So I think when it comes to the issue that we're discussing, I tend to be a purist. If whatever I'm doing adds to this sort of greater pantheon of human knowledge in a way that's valuable, then go for it. That that's my
0: benchmark. Yeah, well but but then you, you smuggled in value there at the end, you know. So the question is what is valuable given that there's an infinite number of things we can study and there's not enough time to do it. I totally agree with you. Obviously my bias is in the same direction as the one you right. expressed. So to some degree what the noises I'm making now are, are a kind of devil's advocate position. Sure. You know, I think the idea that any of these kinds of questions are taboo is ultimately dangerous because the reason why it's taboo is because we're living in a cultural landscape where people are, are defining themselves in terms of the, the narrow communities they're a part of. It's the problem of identity politics. I mean, there is no result, I, I can tell you, there is no result that could come out about Ashkenazi Jews that I would take personally right? (laughs) The sky's the limit. I mean, it could be, you know, everything from penis size to acquisitiveness. I mean, I'm just trying to imagine what would offend people, but it's just, there's nothing, right? And for me, clearly that we have to get to a time where basically everyone feels that way about the community that they're in based on these superficial differences with respect to skin color and, and all the rest. So, I'm sympathetic with your bias here, but I do recognize that it's just though the, the landscape is changing, there are different trends here, and it's, in some ways, it's changing for the worse. And and we have, as you say, say this commitment to political correctness, especially within academia, and especially among the young, that is making it impossible to talk about things that are obviously hugely important to talk about—not you know racial difference in in intelligence, but Things like the spread of political Islam. so right. that's I worry that if you attach yourself to too many controversial things and and aren't kind of curating your your offense a little more carefully, and again, I, I, I speak not about you personally but sure. you know, all of us, you, you sort of wear out your welcome. So that's the reason
1: why I haven't gotten the offer from Stanford. Otherwise, there's no rational reason why it hasn't come yes, yet.
0: Right, right, right. And that's a, an obvious problem that people have to consider. You know, is what happens to your career when you touch any of these topics. I mean, when, when you think about someone like Charles Murray, right? Right. Who, who I don't know. I, I mean, I've met him once briefly, and you this know, is the,
1: I, the, the bell curve guy, right? Yeah.
0: So he wrote the bell curve with his colleague, who I think has passed away, and that was a hugely controversial book, obviously, and and, and honestly, I, I never even read it, right? And, and I haven't read the chapter, I think it was just one chapter, that was the, the epicenter of the controversy. And I don't, you know, frankly know whether what's in there justifies any of the opprobrium that has been heaped right. upon him, but you know, there's no question that his life has been affected by this. You know, I, I'm sure everyone who collaborates with him or introduces him as a speaker, has to, on some level, apologize in advance for his history of controversy. And some of it might be totally unwarranted. Again, I don't know, but whenever I have looked into one of these scandals, like Larry Summers at at Harvard, he was speculating about a, a different degree of variance in male and female populations with respect to math ability. And his remarks, they're just as plain vanilla speculation as you could imagine. And yet he was, you know, hurled out of Harvard for it. In any case, that's the landscape in which we are being asked to function. And I think you do have to sort of pick your battles, although I seem to pick so many of them that it's (laughs) it's kind of strange coming from me. But luckily
1: for you, you're outside of academia. So in a sense, it affords you a bit more leeway, right? You're not in the vipers' den, so to speak, right?
0: Yeah, but, you know, obviously I still want to be taken seriously and given a fair hearing when I decide to open my mouth. And I have certainly paid the price for having touched so many of these topics. And even this conversation we're having now will be readily spun against me. And what happens is you wind up building all these friction right. points where you, you have to start a conversation dealing with the thing that someone heard about you that, in, in fact, is not true. And again, I, I see that I I am contaminated by this with respect to other people. So, you know, I see, you know, someone says, oh, you got to have Stefan Molyneux on, on your podcast, right. right? And and so I take a look at what he's been saying and what's being said about him, and I think, I don't have the time to figure out whether this guy is really a racist crackpot. And, and to some degree, everyone is dealing with this problem, and, and and certainly they're dealing with this problem with respect to people like ourselves.
1: Well, you know, I I mean, your, your point is one that I have had to deal with in my own choice of you know whom to invite on my show and uh, as you were trying to come up with some of these names and you came up with uh stefan uh i could mention a few from my own show uh tommy robinson Mm, yeah robert robert spencer anne-marie waters and a whole bunch of other guys all of whom i mean really are you know probably in in the circle of sort of uh you know you're an islamophobe uh land they probably score you know much higher than you and i was you know very very minimally concerned about you know exactly the issue that you mentioned and then again my personhood kicked in which said no I will not be silenced I will give these guys a fair hearing and and I'm here to report that uh you can't imagine how many people wrote to me Sam saying you know I had been you know hoodwinked into thinking that Tommy you know Robinson is is you know he's on He's basically Mengele, you know, from the yeah. Nazi party, right? Yeah. And then I heard him speak on your show, and he struck me as very, very reasonable and very measured. I mean, I mean, he's not hes not the most eloquent guy in the world, if, if I may say, uh, but he's certainly bright. He's measured, and their opinions were changed. So it's a fine line. I mean, on the one hand, I understand. We, we, we don't live in a vacuum, and we don't want to be fighting the fights. And, of course, you fight them probably a hundredfold more than I do. Uh, but on the other hand, if we, if we succumb to that mob pressure, uh, then they're basically dictating whom we can speak to. Correct.
0: Have you ever interviewed someone who you regret interviewing for reasons of uh, along these lines that you, you didn't actually appreciate (laughs) who Uh, they were and they managed to, to fool you and, and pass for reasonable, but then you discovered something heinous about them and now you feel sullied.
1: Yeah, right. So I, I have to be a bit diplomatic, which is not easy for me. Uh, there is one gentleman that I interviewed who I think it would be pretty fair to say uh, he is an Islam apologist on steroids. Uh, but I was very calm and, you know, very measured. So I don't have any stories similar to your, what do you call it? The the greatest podcast ever. Oh, yeah, the
0: the <laughs> best podcast ever. Yeah.
1: <laughs> right. So I don't have a story like that. Now, I do have a gentleman who's coming on next week. Uh, who used to be I hope I'm not misspeaking, but I, I think he used to be a terrorist uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then eventually he reformed and now he uh, advises uh, you know the the Canadian security uh, services uh, about you know quote radical Islam and I think that may potentially be a difficult conversation although i it won't it won't be on my end but I sort of noticed he put out a couple of tweets where he started, accusing me of oh so is this what i should expect you're an anti muslim uh, bigot type of guy mm. and then i wrote him privately and i said look if if this is the kind of discourse that we're going to end up having then it's not really very fruitful if, if if you think that simply questioning you on some issue of of islam is going to you know have this appellation thrown at me then it's a useless conversation and he said no 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 okay brother no problem we're we're good so i don't know so i haven't had any that remotely match your level of you know, craziness on your podcast, but uh, hey, the future is long. You never know.
0: Although that craziness is, is of a different sort. Because what I'm picturing here is talking to someone who you you really should challenge on specific points because they they have said crazy, divisive, irrational things in the past, but they're just not saying them on your show. So <laughs> so you get them there, and you know it turns out this person's a, a grand dragon in the KKK, but you don't know that, and you're talking about racial differences in IQ or something in in a good-natured academic way, and you don't realize that this person's interest in this topic is just the tip of the iceberg, right. and the iceberg is horrendous. I think that's a situation one could be in. I mean, I, you know, obviously, I think that you could have an interesting, potentially interesting conversation with anyone. You know, I, I would, you know, I'd be willing to go into a prison and talk to a serial killer. Because I think that would be a fascinating conversation. There are many questions I would want to ask someone who has killed many people. But at least in that situation, I would understand who I was talking to. And what I worry about with many of the people you name, someone like Robert Spencer, he comes so fully stigmatized that unless you've paid enough attention to the kinds of battles he's fought to be confident that you know that that all of that opprobrium is unwarranted, well, then you just don't—you don't actually know who you're talking to. And well,
1: what, what, one of the ways that I handled specifically the Robert Spencer case is, as people started writing to me saying, "Hey, why are you speaking to this Nazi?" and so on, I said, "Look, uh, you know, the comment section on my YouTube channel is open. Uh, why don't you share some manifestations of, you know, some nefariously racist, you know, horrible things that he's done?" And then at least I could be educated. Guess what? I didn't see him. Mm, so yeah. so I think that's one of the ways by which you could, I think, take their concerns seriously, right? I mean, you're exhibiting that you're open to having the opinion that they'd like you to have of him. You're open to that possibility. Uh, but the onus is on you to share that information. So I So I won't accept that he's simply a vile Nazi Islamophobe at face value and then not bring him on. Uh, And and I've had this even with guys who are less toxic, right? People said, uh, you know, why are you speaking to Paul Joseph Watson on uh, uh, the Alex Jones Network? You know, Alex Jones is this kind of bombastic Mm. guy. Do you know who that is?
0: I, I know Alex Jones, I don't know Paul Joseph Watson.
1: Uh, yeah. right and, well and the reality is that to me i was very pragmatic about it uh it's a forum it's a large forum that would allow me to share ideas and probably a bunch of people who otherwise would have never heard of me now know of my work precisely because i went on that show so i think it's it's difficult to always run away from folks that come with a dangerous appellation because then it'll be just you and i talking to one another all day yeah although from my perspective Maybe speaking to you is going to get a lot of hate on me now.
0: You never know. you know. <laughs> so it was, let's get into these controversial waters with respect to Islam, because obviously oh, yes. you and I have both spent a lot of time here, and, and we agree, I think we agree largely, I, I think there are probably some interesting points of disagreement, though, but we certainly agree that the reflexive denial that the unique problems we're seeing in the Muslim world have anything to do with religious doctrine. That denial that we see everywhere is a real cause for concern, and it's intellectually and ethically unjustifiable. And, you know, you and I both spend a lot of time convincing people that there really is a connection between the way people behave and what they believe, and they're telling us what they believe, and we should believe them in most cases. So it's you know, jihadism is not merely political. You know, it's amazing that that's still a controversial point. I think we probably do have some different intuitions on on certain points. So tell me a little bit. I think you you and I once had dinner, and you were talking about how living in Montreal gave you a, a somewhat different picture on questions of immigration and whether Islam. Was amenable to reform in the way that someone like Majid Nawaz suggests. And so give me give me your sure, your picture sure. of what's going on.
1: Incidentally, uh, uh, when you mentioned earlier a conversation that uh, uh, you know would have been difficult to have had to to be had, I tried to have that conversation with Majid. I reached out to him uh, because I disagreed with the, some of his uh, prescriptions, and uh, you know. He, he, he blew me away because apparently the final inerrant word had been written in a book that you had done with him. So that would be a manifestation in my eyes of someone who wasn't willing to engage in a discussion. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that I had started my clip by saying that I applaud his work and this is the type of guy that we should be supporting, but there were specific details that I disagreed with him. But that said, so to go to, the, to your Montreal question, look, the reality is that... And you've said this a million times in, in, in very large forums. We have to differentiate between, of course, individuals and be, between the ideology. Just let's say it for the one millionth time. So, individual Muslims might be lovely, but what happens to a society when it becomes more Islamized? That, if you'd like, is a question that we all have to ask.
0: Mm-hmm. And that, there are really actually, actually, but be- Before you get into that, which is sure. exactly where I want you to go, you might just tell listeners who who aren't aware of it, that you have a background that gives oh, you sure. a kind of a life experience here that that, <laughs> right, that sure. many of us don't have.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's a, that's a great point. Uh, so I was born in Lebanon. Uh, I, w- I grew up in Lebanon. And uh, so my mother tongue is Arabic. We're Arabic in a multiplicity of ways. And some, some of the music that we listen to and the foods. And if you saw us, you wouldn't know that we are anything but Arabic. Uh, The only asterisk is that we're Lebanese Jews. Mm. And uh, when the civil war uh, broke out in Lebanon in the mid 70s, uh, it became uh, about as precarious as anything can be to be Jewish in Lebanon. And so we had to leave under imminent threat of execution. So some of the things that people in the West now are used to seeing in terms of, you know, ISIS and so on is stuff that I grew up with in Lebanon, right? Mm. Uh, That was my reality. That's what I escaped from. And so... Uh, I have first-hand experience. Uh, I mean, not that that means that whatever I say should be more trusted, but of course I am shaped by my own unique experience. And my own unique experience says that at any point uh, something could be dormant and then it comes alive. And when it comes alive, look out, right? Because people will point to, oh, but didn't you have an otherwise peaceful existence in Lebanon before that point? Uh, Well, yes and no. I mean, we were tolerated, right? Uh, To be tolerated in the context of the Middle East is very different than to be equal, right? Uh, You're tolerated, it means that we're not going around decapitating you. Well, that to me is not the best benchmark of being an equal citizen under the law, right? Uh, So there were institutionalized laws that did not permit Jews to do certain things, even in the most progressive of Middle Eastern countries, Lebanon, right? My brother, who was the Lebanese judo champion, I think three years running, had to leave Lebanon before the civil war, because there were there was there were threats on him that he could no longer compete in judo, because, you know, it wasn't good for a Jew to constantly, you know, win the title. Mm. So these realities are things that we faced every day, even pre-war. So that's really the background that I come from. My parents were subsequently, after we emigrated to Canada, uh, and you may or may not know this, I'm not sure if we had discussed it in our last uh, get together. But my parents kept going back to Lebanon after we emigrated to Canada. And in 1980, they were kidnapped by Fatah. Mm. And some really nasty things happened, but luckily we were able to get them out. So, you know, I have, in the same way that some of the other people who are in this space have personal history with this reality, I mean, I have it all, right? I mean, I've lived it. I've escaped it. Uh, You know, for about 20 or 25 years after we escaped Lebanon, I used to have a recurring nightmare where, you know, they're coming to kill us and I have a gun that either malfunctions mm. or I run out of ammunition. So this is real, right? This is part of my, if you'd like, my uh, memory DNA. Uh, so that's, that's my background, and it shapes what I'm now seeing in Montreal, which is that Montreal is becoming increasingly Islamized. So if we compare uh, you know, the number of people that we would see in Islamic garb in Montreal uh, you know, 12, 13, 14 years ago to today, I mean, it's just breathtaking. Does that mean that we've turned into Yemen? Of course not. But we can sort of guess what the trajectory is. With more Islam, is there more peace? Is there more tolerance? Is there more freedom of speech or less? I mean, it's a a very simple calculus, right? In the same way that at the end of every day, we can determine whether that day I've put on weight, nothing has changed in my weight, or I've lost weight. We could ask the very same question. When Islam becomes a majority, in a particular society, is it for the better, and by better I mean by all the tenets that we hold dear in the West, does it is it unchangeable, or does it get worse? And so that's what we really have to look at. Not so much whether uh, you know how many terrorists we let in if we let in immigrants. Is does does Islam once it becomes dominant change the fabric of our societies? And regrettably, the answer is yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. So this is one of these topics that's very fraught and. You know, I have a, a position here with respect to Muslim immigration in the current context of the election because I've been struggling to, to figure out what someone like Hillary Clinton could say that would make sense given the realities we're talking about that wouldn't be just the, the sanctimonious drivel that you hear from unfortunately, from the the current president and and from really all Democrats, which is that this has nothing to do with Islam, and to even think about paying attention to somebody's religious background when you're deciding whether to admit them into the country, that is synonymous by definition with the worst forms of bigotry. So, as listeners to this podcast know, I, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump's. And yet, if you catch him in the midst of a, single sentence or something that purports to be a sentence, <laughs> you you will hear a more honest note struck here. It'll be something like, listen, this is, this is coming from one religion, it's Islam, and we know this, and we can't lie about it. And it, therefore, the fact that someone has a Muslim background tells us something about the possibility of, one, that they're jihadist, and two, that they harbor opinions, now I'm starting to speak in a way that Trump wouldn't, but that they may in fact harbor opinions that are deeply inimical to everything we value culturally, free speech and the rights of women and the rights of gays and all the rest. And so it is just a fact that if you're going to let in 100,000 Muslims from a country like Syria even with the best of intentions, and even with some process of screening, you will let in some percentage of that 100,000.
1: And you know what that percentage is, by the way, Sam? Do you want to take a guess what that number is?
0: Well, it, it, when this all turns on how good your screening is, right? So if it was no screening, then, then you're sampling the whole society. But one one hopes that there's some process of vetting here that weeds out people who are obviously... Salafists, or obviously sympathetic with ISIS, or all the rest. So, D- Douglas Murray was talking about this on, yeah. on the podcast, you know, some probably a year ago now when the migrant crisis was really kicking off. No matter how good your screening is, you have to honestly acknowledge that no screening paradigm is perfect and that there's so much political correctness on our side that one, you know, has good cause to doubt whether any screening procedure would be. Of the sort that you and I would support, right? So, like, are, are they are they really going to ask intrusive questions about a person's religious convictions, and are such questions sufficient to tease out attitudes? I mean, let's say let's say you could screen out all the jihadists by you know, magically asking the right questions. Are you going to be committed to screening out people who really, down to the you know the the soles of their feet, despise freedom of speech, right? People who you know, it would take a 10 years for them to figure out that they want to live in a society where cartoonists can draw the prophet, right? Because right now they think that those people should be hurled from rooftops. The numbers of people who believe that in the Muslim world is far in excess of anyone who would say they support ISIS or even jihadism. And so that's the situation you're left with, is to let in great numbers of Muslims is different than letting in great numbers of Christians, even from the same societies or Yazidis from, from Iraq, because of specific facts about the doctrine. And, and this is what is refreshing about the juggernaut of narcissism and delusion that is Donald Trump. Most people are in denial about this reality, and it's it's something we just have to honestly talk about. Now, now I say all this believing that the prescription of not letting in Muslims or not letting in anyone who could be Muslim from any of these societies is not workable and, and in fact not wise for the reason that many sanctimonious liberals espouse, but obviously they, they espouse it in the context of not actually acknowledging the nature of the problem. I mean, the, the buffer against Muslim extremism and the only prospect for reform in the Muslim world is Muslim moderation on some level? So it, it's got to be at minimum. It's the ex-Muslims, right? It's the it's, right. it's it's someone like, you know, you know Sarah Hader, right? Right. Who 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 just who you know you know ten thousand Sarah Haders given huge platforms. That's what the world needs. And if you keep Sarah Hader out because she came from the wrong country, or you keep Faisal Saeed Al Mutar out because he came from Iraq and he was Muslim. Those are the people who have to be empowered, and those are the people who have, to, who have to be given all the resources we can muster, and those are the people who we need here, and and we, then we need people who are just like them in their commitment to liberalism and pluralism and tolerance and rationality, but who, for whatever reason, are still identified as Muslims, like Majinawa's. You know, you need people like that at the mosque in Montreal or New York or Houston or Los Angeles, and those are the people who are the you know our early warning system against, and really our immune system against the the spread of quote Islamic extremism. So if we just followed the the Trumpian line of saying okay you know no more Muslims, I, I don't see how we have taken the step. empower the reformers
1: so look i completely agree that somewhere between trump's prescription of no more entry of muslims and the open door policy of the you know ostrich brigade lies the sweet spot the problem is or, or or maybe a problem or not or we may or may not disagree is where that point is from my perspective i struggle with this issue all the time because no one probably knows more nice and decent muslim probably no one has more muslim friends than i do by virtue of my background right so obviously at the individual level there is no discussion to be had there are very nice muslims There are very bad muslims we're talking here about statistical regularities right our brains have evolved to detect statistical regularities. I mean, that's a central feature of the architecture of the human mind. Mm-hmm. The reason why we don't go down a dark alley, I I, I uh, satirized uh, an argument that Lawrence Krauss had made about how statistically it's insignificant, the likelihood of you dying from uh, terrorism, so don't worry about it by using the following analogy, right? I took the data from all murders for a particular year in Canada, which is very small. Your chances of dying of murder in Canada is unbelievably small. If you look at the number of murders in Canada that were committed in Dark Alley, which is a subset of that, it's astonishingly smaller. Yet most of us, when faced with the choice of walking, you know, in a public uh, street or in a dark alley, we refuse to walk down that dark alley. And so then I, of course, I satirize it as, you know we're being dark alley or phobic, right? The reality is that it's a it's a numbers game. And the reality is if you let in a hundred thousand people from those countries where you know many, many surveys show that the rate of genocidal anti-Semitism is you know ninety five percent, ninety eight percent, ninety nine percent. So that's a really small minority of ninety nine percent of people, right? And now, if I as a Jew say, you know what, I'm not really comfortable with 95% of 100,000 new people coming in who I know hate me and my children. Is that a rational position for me to take? Now, if you keep those values at the door the minute that you come in, if there is a magic way by which we can decontaminate you from that hatred then come in, my brother. I don't care if you're brown or white or blue or Muslim or not. But to the extent that we don't have that magic machine, then the numbers that we let in has to be such that it doesn't have any capacity to irrevocably change the character of our society, right? When you're letting in one million people to Germany, Mm. it doesn't take much of a demographer by looking at the differences in fertility rates to say, look, I can predict that in 40 years, you guys are going to have trouble. Why? Well, because when Islam becomes in the majority, chances are you don't get John Lennon singing Imagine while holding hands with the Jews. We know that. We've got 1,400 years of history of that. So, we, you know, we just have to be honest about it. Now, in the case of Trump, uh, this is where you and I, quote, have a disagreement. I agree with everything that you say about Trump. I mean, I, I loved your analogy about him being a balloon that goes in different directions. Is that what was that? Can you can you remind us what that analogy was?
0: A picture of his mind, or at least the way I see his mind, <laughs> is you know, if you hold up a balloon without tying off the end and release it and just watch it fly chaotically around the room. That's that's how I view the quality of his of uh, his mind and attention.
1: Right. So now let's so let's take Trump versus Clinton uh, as relating to Islam. Uh, there are different decision rules that we can use in making a choice. So for example, we could take all of their attributes that define them, and then we choose that candidate who scores higher on the greater number of attributes. And then maybe if we use that decision rule, well, then Clinton wins. On the other hand, there is another rule called the lexicographic rule, which basically says, look at the most important attribute for you. I mean, if you were choosing toothpaste, the most important attribute might be price, so I choose the toothpaste that has the lowest price. That would be called the lexicographic rule. Well, if we, if Islam or immigration is the most important issue to you, and you are somebody who is willing to choose a president based on the lexicographic rule, then to the extent that you and I would probably agree that Donald Trump has a better handle on this issue than Clinton, then you would choose Trump, and it would not make you irrational. So all I'm saying is that we have to be a bit more nuanced, and I'm not... I'm not attacking you here. I'm just saying, in our general discourse, we have to be more nuanced than to say, you know, she's presidential and polished, and, you know, he's a decapitated chicken without a head who just utters random nonsense. Uh, the truth lies somewhere in between. In my case, I know for a fact, and I hope I'm not being presumptuous, that irrespective of whether Trump or Hillary Clinton come in, at the end of four years, very little is going to change in terms of the economy and all the other things. The sky is still going to be the same color, so to speak, and the sun is still going to rise in the same way. But if we have a person who is going to go down Angela Merkel's uh, policies Hmm. and has promised to bring in 500,000 new immigrants from that region, I know that downstream there will be irrevocable changes that will have an effect on our societies. And I'm not American, right? So... People can listen to my position and know that I don't have a dog in this fight. I don't care. I'm not voting. But I know what happens when Islam becomes dominant, notwithstanding that most Muslims are perfectly lovely. So therefore, I look at the issue that I think matters most to my children and yours, and I say, which of these two candidates scores better on that? And then maybe I'll go with the one who scores better, and that's it. What do you think of that logic?
0: Yeah, well, I just don't—I wish our, our situation was that rosy, but I just think given the nature of Trump's mind and given the kinds of things he has said, you just can't be a single-issue voter with, with respect right. to this election. Because, I mean, he has said sufficiently crazy and world-destabilizing things that if taken seriously, and, and they, were, they were uttered earnestly— they just they they suddenly pose bigger problems than Islam, arguably. You know, so for him to say that maybe we want to default on our national debt or basically renegotiate it like it's a you know failing casino, you're talking about destroying America's standing in the world and maybe kicking off a global recession. You know, it's just it's insanity. And global warming being a Chinese hoax. I mean, all the, I mean the kinds of right. things that come out of his mouth are enormously important and just so ill considered as to be, uh, you know, just, I can't believe that we're in the situation of, uh, you know, where his proximity to power is something we're actually having to to contemplate and respond to. The only thing standing between him and more responsibility than any person has arguably had in human history is the deeply flawed candidate of Hillary Clinton. You know, I mean, it's just, yeah. it's a terrible situation. I, I agree with you that this is it's a huge issue. It's not. I don't know that it's the most important issue, given just the other things in play. We've got a nuclear armed Russia actively hacking our election. We got one candidate celebrating it. There's so many things going on that have nothing to do with Islam that are huge.
1: So you're thinking, if I could summarize what you're saying, to put it in sort of a decision making terms, his uh, superior position, whatever that means, on Islam. Uh, does not sufficiently s- sway you uh, in comparison to all the multitude of other ways on which he scores in an inferior way to Hillary Clinton, so that when you look at the total package, you simply have to go with Clinton. Is that a fair sort of summary of what you're saying?
0: Yes, because and his position on Islam is only superior superficially. It's not. It's not right. based on him actually understanding what's going on in the world. He clearly doesn't. He quite famously mistook the Kurds force for the Kurds, you know. Right. I, I I would bet my life he couldn't utter more than a single sentence about the difference between Sunni and Shia Islam, and could certainly could not tell us.
1: It's a huge difference, you know,
0: huge. Yeah, yeah, but he yeah he could yeah exactly, and he couldn't tell us where you know on the map you would place the, the the Sunnis and the and the Shia. There's no reason to believe he understands what's going on in the Middle East or anywhere else with respect to Islam. He just knows there's some there's a problem with Islam. And there's not a problem with Mormonism of the same sort. And so we're we're right to be worried about it. So that, that much he understands. But there's no question that Clinton understands that too. And arguably, the thing to worry about, at least if you're a liberal with her, is that if anything, she's too hawkish with respect to Islam. It's not that she doesn't understand that only one religious community on earth is reliably producing this death cult behavior. No, she understands it, and she's happy to fly predator drones all day long and kill these people, you know, somewhat indiscriminately if you're, you know, on the left and and you're judging that practice. She's already shown a commitment to killing jihadists. That means she knows where the jihadists are coming from. She's not oblivious to the problem. Now, when you talk about somebody like Angela Merkel, who has let in what seems to be a crazy number of refugees and economic migrants without having really thought it through. I just don't see that as something that is at all likely to happen in the U.S. I mean, one, we're we can absorb more people, but two, we're not going to let in nearly the same numbers, I think,
1: well, I've heard I've heard the numbers, and I and, and I, I guess we'll have to check the veracity of those numbers. But I seem to have read somewhere that she's committed to letting in up to half a million, increasing whatever Barack Obama has done right. fivefold. Uh, I don't think that's. I mean, that's not a number that's as bad as whatever's happening in Germany, if only because their number is bigger with a smaller population. I get that, but five hundred thousand. I mean, if you're seeing the number of increased daily terror acts that are hap- attacks that are happening in the US now can we just say that statistically speaking by letting in 500,000 that number will increase however much it will increase by we don't know but it will increase so then why play that game right from a strictly from a very cold perhaps callous uh, perspective why is it that we have to assume that cost i mean i'll give you a, a very small Personal example a few months ago uh, so our, one our son we have, we have a few we have two children and one our son uh, was taken out of daycare because there was a suspicious package somewhere and you know they had to make sure and so on it turned out to be a false alarm. this was something that wouldn't have happened a few years ago but this was a repeat of what I saw in Lebanon and what I would see if I go visit family in Israel right uh, now is this reality going to increase? If you increase immigration from those countries, of course it is. Hmm. So then the question becomes: So what is the moral calculus by which we should justify to ourselves and to our children that it is worthy to take that risk? And Hmm. I don't—I'm not sure if I could come up with it. I mean, can you?
0: So yeah, actually, I do have an answer to that. You can consider it from two sides. So the one side is I am very in touch with the likelihood. In fact, the, the the certainty that many of the people we would be letting in our people, one, we don't have to worry about, and two, just as a, you know, an ethical obligation, the more we could learn about them, the more we would want to let them in. Right. So it's just you know, our our hearts would break for their the, the actual details of, of their story. I mean you have forget about the Muslims for a second. You just have Christians and Yazidis and and others who have been victimized in the in the starkest possible way by sheer bad luck. You know, they had the bad luck to be born into these societies and they're escaping ISIS and you know, we should, we should let them in.
1: Sorry, before you go on, excuse me for interjecting. Uh, then why is it that out of, uh, I don't know what the exact number is, out of let's say 100 people that are let in, less than 1% from the Middle East are not Muslim, are Yazidi and the Maronites and the Greek Orthodox and so on. Isn't that the numbers that we hear? quoted from the people that are being let in from Obama. In other words, it, it, the, the current entry policy is not the one that you're suggesting. It's not that the Yazidis are getting preferential treatment to be let in. It is still the case that 99% of the people who are le- being let in are precisely belonging, to are co-religionists of mm-hmm. the ones that the ones that are truly ev- trying to escape are not being let in. So what's the logic there?
0: I'd heard that, but I, I'd heard that from sources that I, I don't feel that I can trust. So. Do, do you have good information on that? Because I, uh, I would I, be interested I, to hear it. Uh,
1: I mean, I could look up to see where I got it, so I can't uh, vouch for its veracity, but those are the numbers that I had seen. But certainly right. it's worth checking the veracity. But anyways, sorry yeah. for... Okay, People.
0: so so yeah, so in my view, that would be a total mistake, both morally and, and politically. I don't know what the, the percentages are, but let's say 10% of, of Syria is non-Muslim. And we should be letting in at least 10% right. non-Muslims and and probably much more, you know, because these are arguably the people who have an extra r- reason to fear persecution and to be escaping, you know, legitimate problems will be Christian or Yazidi or, or probably 15 Jews who got out right. at the last minute. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, th- that would be a mistake. And, and obviously a religious test for entry would make a lot of sense in the sense that you, to find out that someone is Christian coming from one of these societies is to learn a lot about the likelihood that they will become a jihadist spontaneously five years from now once they're, you know, driving a cab in New York and, you know, not having such a good time, right? if they're actually Christian, the, you know, the the likelihood is vanishingly small. So that's relevant information. And the fact that it's taboo to even talk this way is a real problem. But I, I'm just aware of the fact that when you look at someone like, you know, again, people people who you've interviewed and, and you know, people who I consider friends and colleagues like Faisal or Sarah or I don't actually recall if Sarah immigrated from anywhere. I don't think she did. Or was she born in the States?
1: She's she's of Pakistani descent. I can't remember. If she came to the States, she certainly came when she was very young.
0: So anyway, but you can imagine someone just like her, right? With all of her potential to do good in the world and her level of commitment to rationality and, and all the values that we want to defend. And that person is just languishing in a refugee camp in Jordan, say. Right. That's the most important person in the world, from my point of view. Given perfect information, that's the first person on my list to bring into the country. So that's one side of it. The, the other side is we routinely make decisions for which the, the the actual price, you know, the undeniable price is the loss of innocent human life. So my go-to example here is always the speed limit, right? So if, if we were asked, you know, do, do you want to reduce the speed limit in your society, to save the maximum number of innocent human lives, what kind of monster would you have to be not to want to do that? So what would that actually entail? So, you know, the speed limit, let's say, is 65 miles an hour on your highways. If you reduce that by half, you're going to save, what, a net 10,000 lives in the U.S.? I mean, something like that's got to be true. I mean, certainly it would be thousands. Or you, you could go further. It could just be five miles an hour, you know? and. Right. And then it would take you would just wouldn't be able to commute anywhere really, realistically, and society would have to proceed along different lines. Well, when you actually look at why people don't want to reduce the speed limit, I mean, the, the reasons aren't even the good reasons of, well, listen, the, the, the economic cost of doing this would then also tally in losses of life, right? You'd, I mean You would just be destroying so much human wealth. You would just need, need only calculate the mortality points you earn doing that. Forget about that. People just like to drive fast. It's just fun. Right. So, so if you gave people a choice, listen, you, you, you got a new car, I understand you love it, but we're now going to put a governor on it so that you cannot speed. So we're not even going to reduce the speed limit. We're just going to ensure that no one can drive over it. People w- will recoil from that because they want the freedom to break the law. They have a nice new car. They want to be able to drive 75 miles an hour, even though there's no place they ever go where that's the speed limit or 85 miles an hour or whatever it is. And so there are these frivolous attachments we have that we know translate into spilled blood on the pavement. I mean, literally, this is true, right? So. Mm -hmm what should the price be for texting while driving, right? There are people who are still can't figure out that they shouldn't be texting or reading their email while driving their cars. And some number of these people, it's just a matter of statistical fact, some number of these people are going to be driving over other people's children in a crosswalk today, yeah. right? it probably exceeds drunk driving as a, a reason for needless human death and injury on our roads at this point. So what should we do to people who are caught texting while driving? Well, we could get very draconian about this and change the behavior and save a lot of lives really quickly. You know, actually we could take these people and just drop them into ISIS held territory in Syria and not let them emigrate, right? right? We we could we could put them in the refugee camp. So and we could put this on television, right? We could have a pay-per-view special where you take, you know, <laughs> The, the the 30 people, no matter who they are, who were caught texting while driving in Beverly Hills today and just airlift them to Syria and say, OK, you guys, you know. Do, could, could, could one of those people be Ben Affleck? He might do very well over there. <laughs> the claims of death and suffering are fungible here. And we can sort of move these pieces around and then decide, you know, which lives we want to save. And so I, and I, I don't view the lives lost to terrorism as fundamentally different from the lives lost to car accidents and anything else. Obviously, if it happens to your kid, it's the worst thing that's ever happened. And it doesn't really matter that it was a an IED or somebody driving a minivan. So that's kind of a two-part answer to your question. I think we do make decisions all the time that we know are going to put lives in jeopardy. And there's just... You know the the risks are such, and the numbers are such that we we accept the burden of these decisions.
1: i mean i'm I'm willing to accept the sort of uh, cost benefit trade-off if I can summarize what you just said in in, in this way in this mm. sim- in the succinct way. The problem, I think, is that the cost benefit analysis that you've mentioned, uh, at least if if I understood it correctly, is relevant at any particular temporal point. at time t equal x, let, let's let your calculus be operative. The problem, though, with when we're talking about Islam, is you have to take a longer view of this issue. And that is, it's not just how many people will die in the next year or today versus how many people like Sarah Hayder will be saved and Faisal, who are lovely people. The question is, if the demographic realities are altered in a society as a function of greater incursion of Islam, What happens downstream to that society? Once you incorporate that longer, sort of intertemporal view to your calculus, then I think you might change. And again, I don't want to come across here as I'm the hawkish guy on Islam while Sam Harris (laughs) is the gentle, more moderate one. Uh, But what I'm basically saying is that look, I'm all for having a very ethical and moral uh, program for letting people in, whether they're Muslim or not. I don't care. But It has to be taken with two fundamental ideas. Number one, the people that we let in, we we are entitled to say, what do they bring us as benefits? In other words, you're not obligated to to become friends with people that you otherwise don't share many values, right? In your personal life, you do make a decision. I'd like to be friends with people who hold these beliefs, and I don't want to be friends with people who hold these other beliefs. By the same token, at the aggregate level, a society is allowed to say, I only wish to allow entry to those who exactly are willing to abide, support, and the ethos of the West. And if you hold views and values, irrespective of who you are, if tomorrow there's a new religion called uh, purple, Uh, that is antithetical to those views, then I don't have a moral obligation to let you in because you are going to wreak havoc to my society. Maybe tomorrow, maybe in a 100 years, but it will happen. And we have tons of data to support that narrative. So why not speak openly, honestly about it? Donald Trump is wrong. He's extremist in his views. And every ostrich liberal idiot is wrong. Somewhere in the middle is where the truth lies. And I think you and I, I think we both try to find that sweet spot, correct?
0: Yeah, I think we agree about certainly the the, the structure of the right answer. Right. Actually, I think, you know, if you and I were doing the vetting, I think we would probably agree about each individual case, too.
1: And I'll tell you how I could, if I could interject again, uh, uh, there's a game that I satirize, but frankly, the satire is very accurate. It's called Six Degrees of Kill the Jew. And the game works as follows, and it comes from my
0: personal experience. Do do you really need six degrees? Very good. (laughs) I'm trying to be charitable
1: here, Sam. Uh, So basically, the way the game works is Ahmed comes to the room. I say hello to him. How many exchanges does it take before we converge, especially since I speak Arabic, and therefore he certainly doesn't know that I'm Jewish, before we both converge on let's go kill the Jews, right? Mm. And the reality is, this is how it typically goes. Hi, Ahmed, how are you? Fine. Let's kill the Jews, right? Uh, So you know what? I don't want people who adhere to that. And until I have a magic machine that allows me to look into your heart honestly, and know whether you hold those beliefs or not, then I'm under no obligation to let you in. So And I don't know what the answer is. And I realize that the discourse that I'm giving right now sounds as though I'm being very harsh. And I'm not, because obviously, as I just said, of the top 100 Muslims that I know, every single one of them is a lovely guy that doesn't fit the kill the Jew stereotype, right? But that doesn't say anything about the greater issue, right? And frankly, it's a
0: conundrum. I don't know how to solve it. Do, Do you know anything at all about what the vetting procedure is like?
1: Uh, I don't, the only thing I can say, I mean, in Canada, I think it was Ali Rizvi, whom we both know well, uh, I think he had said, I I hope I'm not misattributing this story to him, but I I think it was him who said that when he came to Canada, I think it was something like a 12 to 18 months, you know, vetting pro like the whole process took that long. So if let's take that number, let's take the smaller end of that number, it's 12 months. So how could it be that under pre Justin Trudeau if it took 12 months to clear Ali Rizvi what is the new magical vetting process that has allowed us to bring in 25 to 50,000 Syrians and vet them in a astonishingly quicker manner than that which Ali Rizvi faced right so i mean without knowing anything about the details some shortcuts must be happening no
0: yeah and again one can only imagine that the Role played here by political correctness in greasing the wheels has got to be a dangerous one. Given the kinds of conversations I've had with people who are close to the levers of power, I have no confidence that people are disposed to ask the sorts of questions that we would wish they would. And and, and certainly the idea that no one on the on the side of the the vetters could unabashedly say, well, we are really looking for Yazidis and Christians first, because this solves so many of our problems. I mean, because we, we, one, we know we're not going to take in everybody. There's just no way we can do it. So if if our quota is 500,000, and we know we have 100,000 Yazidis who are struggling to, to come in, well, let's just take those straight away. That would be a taboo thing to do. Right. Or it certainly seems, based on what people have said on this topic. And that's just just madness, from my point of view, that, that you would tie one of your hands behind your back in the vetting process and not take advantage of what the population statistics are, get, are handing you, right? Which is, we have these communities which we know, by definition, don't pose any of the problems, or at least the most grave problems we're worried about. And one could expect would be doubly grateful for having gotten out of the hellhole of sectarianism that you just now rescued them from. But it it would be fascinating to actually talk to somebody who does this, you know, who's actually there in the room and who could tell us the kinds of questions that get asked, the kinds of documentation people have. I mean, I just, I can't imagine how you can ever be truly confident that you understand who someone is apart from discovering something like, oh, they happen to be a Christian It's easy to see you'd catch some number of people expressing the kinds of sympathies that you you would think would link up with many other things that you would find dangerous. But if someone's committed to just deceiving you, you know, if, if, if it's true that ISIS is sending people who are committed jihadists and they're coming into the migration crisis with the conscious intention of gaming the system so as to wage jihad in the West, it's hard to see how you would catch such a person.
1: But see, again, I think that maybe one of the differences between your discourse right now and the way I view the problem, and here I'm going to appear maybe more hawkish than you, is that I really think that the catching the jihadist is a small part of the bigger problem.
0: I do agree with you about that. Okay,
1: yeah. So, But, but I think that most people, even those who would agree with much of what you and I say, don't take that additional leap. It's a question of... What does it take before you irrevocably change the character of your secular, liberal, modern society, right? If I walk downtown Montreal 15 years ago and every girl is in a miniskirt of every race and nationality and faith or non-faith, that's the Montreal I know. If now half those women are in burqas and niqabs and hijab and so on, you know, it really doesn't take Einstein and Newton to understand what will happen to our society. Notwithstanding the fact that most Muslims will be here will be lovely and kind and guys that I would want to have taboo with. But that's not the point. The point is what happens to the greater society. So until our politicians are able to sort of enunciate this position, and I think frankly Mm -hmm. right now the one who comes closest to it, as much as you might despise him and as buffoonish as he is, is Donald Trump. And in the European context, one who is perhaps much more eloquent. Is Geert Wilders, right? Hmm. I mean, short of these two leaders, there's really no one who is engaging in an honest discourse. I mean, is that does that sound accurate? I mean, do, do you know anybody else?
0: Again, I, I can't sign on to... Geert. To, no, 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 actually, no, I, I could sign on. I mean, he, he is talking about this problem, at least articulately, and I know he knows what he's talking about. Now, he, again, he's one of these people who If I had him on the podcast, I wouldn't quite know who I was talking to because he says many things that I've agreed with, but obviously he also comes in this toxic nimbus of claims about his own intolerance that I would have to find some way of giving some proper shape to. So so I, I don't actually know who Vilders really is. But again, I totally agree that the larger issue is one of the norms and and other values that that any population shares or can be reasonably expected to share. And, I mean, so so for instance, how often do you see someone in a burqa or a niqab?
1: Burqa or niqab is quite rare. I've seen it. As a matter of fact, close to my house, we tried to go to a, a, a children's park and saw two women in full burqa. Uh, my daughter got out, felt a bit scared, we got back into the car and left. So it's happened a few times, not too often, but I guess if you expand the your question to in Islamic garb, which is various versions of at least some version of a hijab or chador or this or that, hmm. then it, it I mean I could walk down I could walk out of my house and out of the first twenty women I see, eight are wearing Islamic garb. Okay, Uh, I mean, I just made up that number. I don't know exactly. I haven't actually done that number. But I mean, what I'm saying is there are places in Montreal where it has now become uh, the norm to see women in one form of veil or another, whereas up to 13 years ago, I had seen one woman from 1975 when we emigrated to Canada to 2003 when I returned from California when I was at UC Irvine, I had seen one woman in my entire life wearing a hijab. Well, from 2003 till today, you know, I can't tell you how many there are. It's just, it's endless. It's innumerable. And so the question then becomes, does that alter the fabric of the society? Well, of course it does. I mean, right? Tomorrow there'll be public requests for public prayers. The next day it'll be, right? I mean, Islam doesn't just sit quietly and it's a private expression of one's faith. It it always seeks to go into the public sphere. Now, that doesn't mean that every Muslim does this but it certainly is that Islam, as a set of ideas, doesn't sit quietly in the privacy of one's conscience. And so I know for a fact that tomorrow there'll be somebody at school who'll say, hey, I need to take a break because I need to to go and pray. As a matter of fact, I know that at my university, uh, someone, a, a registrar, told me confidentially a few years ago that they now had proctors at the exams who specifically catered to Muslim students if they had to stop during the exam to go off to pray. Mm -hmm. Now, that's at a secular university in a secular country. How do these things mesh together?
0: I completely agree that you open the door to all of these changes, which, because they are anchored to a deep religious bamboozlement, and not all bamboozlements are the same, yeah, open your society to all kinds of changes in values that you don't want. And I, I think The commitment to secularism and to specific values like freedom of speech has to be defended at at really any cost. The line in the sand that has to be drawn is we don't give in to threats toward newspaper editors who publish cartoons. And the fact that we have in the West caved in on those points, we reliably fail. To defend secularism and and freedom of speech when they're put under challenge it does not suggest that we will be good at defending these things in the future we need a total firmware upgrade of our commitment to these principles
1: do you feel hopeful about that do you feel that there will be some trigger some catalysmic you know point uh that will cause this sort of stifling, suicidal political correctness to start swinging in the other direction, or are we doomed?
0: Well, I do think the pendulum will swing, and it may be in the process of swinging, but it, unfortunately it's swinging politically in the direction of very energized right-wing nativist movements, both in the U.S. and in, in Europe. That, I think, is counterproductive. I mean, that that will set us up for another pendulum swing. but right. So, so what's really needed here are people who are obviously tolerant and cosmopolitan and committed to all the right things.
1: You mean of the faith of the Islamic faith?
0: No, no. I, well, no, but, but I, I mean, even you know people like ourselves here. I mean, just right. people who obviously are not bigots, right? Who right. can honestly say, you know, I love the music, I love the buildings, I love the food. I've got friends who from all these cultures. I, you know, I, I want a cosmopolitan society, but. I can talk honestly about the consequences of belief systems and different norms and not all cultures represent equivalent software packages to be running on your brain when it comes time to collaborate peacefully with strangers in a pluralistic civil society and one of the things you have on your hard drive is a total commitment to the veracity of everything in the Quran and a commitment to defending that claim against all critics with violence if necessary, well, then we've got no place for you in our society. And so, I mean, there is a deal breaker within the Islamic worldview, which just has to be spelled out, and Muslims have to be encouraged, cajoled, enticed, and, you know, when push comes to shove, coerced into reforming that, you know, indigestible bit of nonsense, which is giving us, you know, Islamism and jihadism and a commitment to all of these obviously destabilizing and and, and divisive principles. So let me,
1: I'm glad you mentioned the word reform, because I think that's one of the issues where, uh, you know, uh, given your work with Majid, uh, where we might disagree. See, I think that this piecemeal attempt that Majid is trying, with uh let's take this particular hadith and let's look at it in this way and let's do the mental gymnastics that gets us the olympic gold medal for mental gymnastics to reinterpret what that means that's going to ultimately fail because that those types of reform attempts it's not as though he's the first to have thought of that there's that there's a history of that going back uh, you know a millennium right that the question if you're truly going to do something in the you know landscape of reform it has to be a cataclysmic uh, reformation. You quote, discover a new revelation. I'm, I'm I'm being slightly facetious, but I mean the point will still hold. You have to discover a new revelation that abrogates all the passages that are violent. So in the same way that you took the abrogation from being peaceful to now the violent ones are relevant, right, the Meccan versus Medinan uh, mm-hmm. dichotomy, now you come up with a single new revelation that with one swoop of the brush gets rid. But this little minutia, right, I mean, in Arabic, a letter is harif, right? You, can, you cannot change a single harif, you cannot reinterpret a single harf in the Quran. So one could argue, doctrinally speaking, that which he is attempting, is complete nonsense, right? I mean, now we can debate and we can do the mental gymnastics, but the reality is it's not as though others haven't attempted that. So there has to be a much quicker way. And I mean, you're the one who actually has said, look, these, these people are holding very dangerous views with 21st century weapons. So we don't have the luxury to sit around and go through the authenticated hadith and the non-authenticated hadith and sort through them and decide which letter we're going to reinterpret. That's what I call the... Holy 3M of apologia, misunderstood, misinterpreted, mistranslated. Rather, if you're truly going to do reform, if you're not going to follow Sarah Hader's prescription, which is jump from Islam to Mm. non-belief, if you think that people have to sort of do it in gradation, then, frankly, I don't think that this piecemeal line-by-line line code of reformation is going to work. Do, do you agree at all with that, or do you think I'm misguided?
0: Well, I, I just don't see an alternative. I, I don't see a, yes. a new revelation being in the cards, and I mean, that wouldn't be accepted by anyone. It's hard to see, you know, how it could ever be theologically credible. So what I view Majid's task as being is, is finding some theologically defensible place to stand where you can get a a truly strong commitment to secularism, and and one way, one place he's found it, which is really doesn't entail buying any of the hermeneutics. So you you can you can be agnostic or or uninterested with respect to any specific hair splitting of the texts, right. but you just have to admit that because there's this radical plurality of views within Islam, and there's no pope who can reconcile these disagreements certainly not in the Sunni world pluralism demands secularism there's just no other way to play this game cuz no one can win there's not even a theological basis to claim unless you are the you're going to go you know all the way with Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and say I'm the caliph there's no way to claim that your view of the matter supersedes anyone else's so you're left with this pluralism and then it is just one small self-preserving step to secularism there. It's like, how, what, how do you want to organize society when we can't agree about the ultimate nature of God and, and his edicts? Well, we'll just keep all of that out of public policy, and you can be privately crazy as a Salafi if, if you want to. Now, of course, that's an unstable situation because the kinds of things that, you know, truly doctrinaire Muslims believe is that all of this is so important that you can't keep it out. Of public policy, because what what you're doing when you keep it out of public policy is you're allowing people to go straight to hellfire for eternity, right. right? And you're allowing them to corrupt your children. And this ambient level of sinning going on around you in society is intolerable, given the requisite beliefs. That's why beliefs matter, and that's why it's it's important to to criticize bad ones in the end, because beliefs inevitably show up. what, what you're really what you really believe, when the stakes are high, inevitably shows up in your behavior and in the kinds of laws you want to see written. And that—that that is the legitimate fear you've expressed, that when you bring in vast numbers of, of generic Muslims into your otherwise pluralistic society, you are, just by dint of numbers, bringing in people who are very likely committed to something that is quite a bit more indigestible than even your run-of-the-mill fundamentalist Christian or Mormon is going to be committed to. And that's you know, that's something that we're, a lot of people are spending a lot of time lying to themselves about that, but it is just true. But I, again, I, do, I just see Majid as someone who is taking great risks to try to articulate a reformist starting point. And I, I think I've said this before on the podcast, one of the most depressing things that I've encountered since collaborating with him has been bearing witness to the evidence of how unpopular he is and that position is in the, quote, moderate Muslim community. Just his his collaboration with me, I mean, just having a conversation with an atheist from the point of view of, you know, normal Muslims, we're not talking about Salafists, we're talking about just, just the oh, source yeah. of people, you know, he has to interact with. That is more controversial than his talking to a jihadist. And so, I mean, the, the fact that that is even possible to say shows you how far we are from getting to anything like normal. And when I see how he's disparaged as a neocon nutcase from their point of view, it is very scary. And it's
1: precisely why I'm arguing that it's not going to ultimately work. But here's another possibility. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to get your reaction to it. And uh, and I should I should start with by prefacing it uh, in terms of, I, I'm not sure how I feel about this, but I, I recently had a conversation with Andrew McCarthy, who is, who was, I think the lead prosecutor, federal prosecutor on the original nine 11 uh, case, you know, the 1993 one with the blind chick and mm-hmm. so on. Uh, and of course he's a lawyer and he, he of course understands, you know, the, the constitutional law and so we, towards, I think, the end of our conversation, we got into a discussion of whether it could ever be conceivable to declare, if not all of Islam, many tenets of Islam as uh, seditious, as not consistent. I mean, and, and, and actually, he said that there, there are very clear legal pathways for that to happen. So, well, first, I guess the question is, have you ever heard of this particular argument? And if so, what are your views on it?
0: No, I hadn't heard that, but it's, you know, th- this is, it's very much in harmony with the way I view religion. I mean, the, the primacy we give religious views, as opposed to any other sort of views, is just dysfunctional, and in specific cases, suicidal. I mean, well, all we have are ideas, you know, we have, we have beliefs, right. and we ha- and the way we talk about them, and beliefs are, you know, our operating system for behaving in the world everything we claim to know about the world everything that motivates us everything that really defines our humanity can be uh, on some level described as a belief and a subset of those beliefs are the, the beliefs people claim are religious and they they have this you know inconvenient property of of one being the beliefs they consider most important most defining of who they are and in fact that the beliefs that they would they're willing to live and die for and in certain cases have their children die for and two these are the beliefs that we are are most squeamish about criticizing and and holding people accountable for the the logical and behavioral consequences of so yes if someone says i've got this religious belief that causes me to want to follow all of these manifestly treasonous principles in my life well yeah then let's just be honest about the fact that 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 particular religious belief is an engine of treason, and let's treat it the way we would treat any other idea that was leading people to commit treason. So, yeah, I I mean, I think if if you could break the taboo around going after religious ideas as opposed to any other sort of idea, well, then I think that would be a a great development.
1: and And let me give you two specific, concrete examples of that. So, for example, if you look at Sharia, uh, you know, you you get some imam who comes on CNN and says, oh, geez, Sharia, I mean, 99% of it is perfectly consistent with the American constitution. I mean, it's difficult to imagine what worldview a CNN moderator can allow such a ridiculous, I mean, to say that the earth is flat is less wrong than what this imam said. It is almost impossible to come up with a a legal code that is more antithetical to the American Constitution. So let me give you just one example. Mm-hmm. Uh, crimes in Sharia, uh, the punishment for crimes are specifically dependent on the identity, typically the religion, of the perpetrator and the victim. Yeah. Boom, there goes the American Constitution, right? So you, you wish to adhere to Sharia, you are in violation of the most fundamental tenet of American Constitution, you're gone. It's illegal. Number one. And it shouldn't take huge discussions. That's number one. Number two, Geert Wilders is currently on trial again in the Netherlands. He was on trial a few years ago for uh, pronouncing something that was veridically true. And the magistrate said that even though something is true, if it incites, uh, you know, antipathy towards a group, then you shouldn't be allowed to say it. So the truth Is illegal if it hurts somebody's feelings. I mean, that's literally the legal position that they were on. So recently, he's now on trial because he asked his uh, uh, constituents, the the guys whom he represents, uh, he's a politician, as you know, he might be the prime minister of the Netherlands at some point. He asked them, look, do you want more uh, Moroccans in the Netherlands or less? That question was Mm. perceived to be racist, and, and, and likely to incite hate towards Moroccans. Well, if you are putting this politician on trial in the Netherlands for having uttered that sentence because it's hateful, then I will open up for you the seerah of Muhammad, and I will open up for you the hadith, and I will open up for you the Quran, and I will find hate speech in there that is of an order of infinite magnitude greater in its hate speech. So if that's the case, if we're going to have hate speech laws, then I know where to look for it and what to render illegal. So I actually think there is a strategic way by which we could attack the ideology while keeping the individual completely integral. And, and that hopefully can help us navigate through the problem of not being bigoted to individuals, but being very frontal against the ideology. I think that's probably the only way forward.
0: Yeah, except in this case, I'm against making hate speech or any other kind of speech illegal. Yeah, right. so I think that's counterproductive. Then you open the door to blasphemy laws and and all the rest. But so
1: even if it incites violence, even if the hate speech has immediate downstream effects towards violence towards a group.
0: Well, the the border there is is kind of fuzzy. I forget how it's legally defined in in the U.S. I think we we probably have the balance right most of the time. But I think yeah, I mean you should be able to be pretty provocative and hateful and still be protected by the First Amendment in in my view because. I actually agree with you. Yeah, I mean, the the appropriate response is having your reputation destroyed, no one comes to your business, people don't want to marry you, and if you can find your own group of hateful lunatics to socialize with, well, then that's just the price we pay for tolerating unpopular opinions. So, for instance, Holocaust denial laws in Western Europe, I think, are ridiculous you should be able to deny the Holocaust. You just... I've
1: I've argued the exact same thing. I'm glad we're on the same page here.
0: Yeah. And I think Gert Wilders, if I'm not mistaken, he thinks the Quran should be banned.
1: Well, I think because his argument is... That the the Quran is actually a recipe book for inciting violence toward, and then he could name the specific group. So I yeah. think that's his argument. He's not just sort of speaking in the hypothetical that let's ban it because we don't like that book. It's because it incites violence.
0: Right, but and I I would agree certainly given the nature of recent history, you could make that argument. But banning Mein Kampf in Germany also I think was counterproductive. I think right. it's just not. The way to, to go after ideas is to go after the ideas and you you create this kind of perverse forbidden fruit false martyr syndrome happening once you ban these specific tracks or make it illegal to say certain things or have certain kinds of conversations. You push these things underground, now they they become framed by another set of, of delusional ideas which is justified here is that you know, we are now being victimized by the unbelievers or the or the, the the people who aren't pure enough or don't who don't have enough white pride or whatever it is and our you know our prophecies are being borne out it's like what happened to the branch davidians that the, you know the, the, cult, oh, uh, the cult that died david, in waco you know david, david koresh david, david koresh yeah. yeah it's like like if you if you become insular enough and you amass enough of an armory And you talk long enough about how the government's going to come in and try to take all your guns, and and you're going to have some last stand. Well, there's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy to these manias, and I think the the solvent that we should generally rely on is just more conversation, more light being shined on bad ideas and their consequences. So passing laws against ideas, I think, is is in general the wrong move, and this goes to also, something like the burqa or or the niqab. You know, I, I think it's. And here I'm a little torn because I know people are being forced to wear these things. And when you th- think of girls being forced to wear a veil by their crazy parents, yeah, then you you want to figure out how to stop that. But
1: I, I actually then, if 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 your position is that no, let's not intrude on their right to quote choose, I actually think that my right to be able to read your facial features. Since that's an evolved
0: quality
1: in my communication system supersedes your right to be in a tent. And if you want to be in a tent, then you don't belong here because I want to be. When I walked to that school, not schoolyard, the the, the play park, Mm. uh, and there were two, I'm guessing women, but they could have been anybody, right? I can't tell who they are who were in black and we all froze and I come from that land and my daughter got scared and we got back into that car, then my rights lost there. and therefore uh, no, I don't I don't think that we should allow uh, that expression, especially yes. when we do know that it is actually seldom. I, I don't think many sane women, when not forced in one way or another, force. By the way, of course, doesn't have to be. I'm going to behead you if you don't wear a burqa. Force could be that this is the norm within our uh, system, and you better abide to to it, or else you'll be ostracized. Right. So that is force, also. Well, no, I don't want that in my streets.
0: Well, I, I certainly agree. I think the the line drawn at the face it makes sense. It's just there There are other cases. So, you know, like, then what do you do with someone who's wearing a Halloween mask in the park, right? Should that be illegal? I mean, if you're, if you're going to, if the law is you have to have your face exposed in public, that seems unenforceable, too. I mean, but, you know, I can understand that on private property, you know, you shouldn't be able to walk into a McDonald's wearing a Halloween mask. They should be able to kick you out for wearing it if you if you won't remove it but as a general matter it just seems like if you're going to say that no one can cover their face i mean that that's how you have to do it you can cuz all of these things can be right. defined and redefined in ways where suddenly it's religious garb and suddenly it's not but it's actually the same thing so well that's
1: precisely that's precisely by the way why uh, to go back to the legal point i made earlier the states that are trying to pass effectively they are anti sharia laws uh, they've now reworded it to say no foreign laws precisely because they wanted to make it appear as though they're not targeting any particular religion or any particular ideology, but rather it has to be integral to domestic law and no intrusion of foreign law, when we all know that it's really about Sharia. Yeah. So what you're what you're arguing is something similar. You're saying, look, you, you ultimately have to express the law in a way that doesn't make it seem as though you're targeting a particular group. And I, and I guess I could sign off on that
0: yeah I, I think with the with the burqa and, and the niqab in particular i mean I, I definitely do think veiling the face is an important variable there, just socially and and as a matter of the woman's experience, certainly if she's being forced to do this. and it's also I, I mean I, we, we should just be able to talk honestly about what these clothing choices mean, you know whether someone's making them for themselves or, or they're being forced on them by others. I mean these this is ideological. Clothing, which conveys a set of ideas and a commitment to them, that is every bit as as salient, or at least should be, as seeing someone with a you know a, a swastika tattooed on exactly. his forehead. Right. So if you feel a certain way about the person who's wearing openly wearing a swastika, you should feel a, a certain way about a guy who's happy to have his wife in a niqab, or demands that his wife be in a niqab in Montreal. It's not crazy to think you know a lot about a person who decides to live that way, just in the same way it's not crazy to think that you know a lot about what someone wearing a swastika believes about the Jews, say, or about black people, if he's a a white skinhead.
1: Well, I've I've made a very similar point on uh, my last appearance on the Dave Rubin's show where I said, look, I used to live in an area in Montreal that was Uh, full of, uh, you know, very ultra, ultra Orthodox Hasidic people. And so you'd see all these Hasidic guys wearing all kinds of garb. And, you know, as I'm driving on the street, uh, you know, on those streets with my wife, I oftentimes kind of look at them and say, what, they just look ridiculous. I mean, 21st century, it's 40 degrees Celsius in the Northeast. It's hot. It's ridiculous that they're dressed this way. But uh, the fact that I have that response, I don't, I'm not fearful for myself because I know that as Jews, and myself as a Jew, that garb signals to me that there's a green light that I will survive that encounter. But the person who is expressing similar religiosity, but a different religion, uh, then I could come to the conclusion that if they wear the burqa or the niqab, they're likely to probably not hold the most laudable of views towards the Jews, right? Again, it's a statistical game. I can't be sure that every single one who wears the burqa, but I could certainly make that statistical leap. And it seems incredible to me that that point is a controversial one, right? I mean, Mm. you would think that that's how our brains have evolved to calculate frequencies, right? This, this is why when we see the shadow of a big animal, we run away, even though once in a while it's a false positive and it turns out to only be an ostrich, no pun intended, right? So, so, so the fact that I come to the conclusion when I see a woman in burqa that all the men that are associated with her are likely to hold views that are not going to be uh, friendly to gays and Jews uh, doesn't make one a bigot. It makes one someone who has a brain who can calculate statistical regularities, no?
0: And another word for that is profiling. You know, this is this, this is <laughs> yes. to, to talk about controversies that one may or may not regret having <laughs> seized a hold of. Profiling, in my view, is just the dirty word for right. acknowledging and being cognizant of those statistical regularities that relate to various threats.
1: Is that is your feeling that is of all the stuff that you've written, is that the one that got you the most blowback?
0: The stuff that gets me blowback, like the game theoretic concern about having a a jihadist regime armed with long-range nuclear weapons and how that's not a recipe for a sustainable Cold War.
1: Sam Harris wants to nuke the Middle East, that
0: one. I mean, that stuff has has gotten me demonized more than any other, but that is just a a frank misunderstanding of what I wrote. I mean, my views about profiling, I think someone can understand them and still based on an unwillingness to actually think clearly about the problem, want to demonize me as a bigot on the basis of those right. views, but that the people who are demonizing me for my secular jihad against the entire Muslim world, you know, by wanting to commit a genocide with nuclear weapons, that's just, people are lying about what I actually wrote in The End of Faith. But there's, there's a very strong sense that we have to be blind to all of these differences, and that to, to say, you know, as Donald Trump has said, that we need to focus on Islam. obviously, there's a problem here. I don't know what it is, but there's there's a problem here, and we should we should you know pull the brakes until we figure it out. I mean, that's basically what he said. Right. And again, I think he is a dangerous buffoon who I am doing far more than many of my fans want to try to keep out of the Oval Office because people find it obnoxious for me to be expressing specific political opinions here. But you know, he's clearly right insofar as you know that sentence goes, right? There's something about Islam that we have to figure out. And that's profiling. And right. it is for the person on the left who doesn't want to think clearly about the world at this moment, that is just as obnoxious and intolerable as saying that black people are inferior to white people. Right. Or, I mean, just, right. just, just fill in your clearly bigoted, racist trope. And to, to not see the difference there and to not see the reasonableness of acknowledging that there's a reason why we're not having this conversation about Mormonism right now. The Mormons are not blowing themselves up, you know, for all the stupid things Mormons are doing, and there are many of them, they are not destabilizing whole societies with their commitment to sectarian violence. So, in any case, you, I, I think you and I uh, totally agree on on that topic, and we've approach the two-hour mark. And oh, yes. We're kind e. of at the end of, of, of human energy, <laughs> whether it's ours or, or our listeners. But it's really been a pleasure to talk to you, Gad. Oh,
1: likewise. That was great. Uh, look forward to the next one.
0: Yeah, yeah. Keep it up. And, and in closing here, tell people where they can find you online.
1: So uh, if they want uh, to check out my clips on YouTube, it's The Sad Truth, S-A-A-D, which is my last name. So The Sad Truth, if you just enter that, you'll find me. Uh, On Twitter, it's at GAD, G-A-D, S-A-A-D. And then I also have a public Facebook page. I don't remember the exact uh, URL, but it should be easy to find. Please don't send me uh, requests to connect on my personal page. Please go to my public page. There you go.
0: Once again, a pleasure, Gad, and to be continued.
1: Thank you so much, Sam. Talk to you soon.